A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 44. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 15. Ramesses the Great, Part 2. To estimate the cost at which these things were done is now impossible. Every temple, every palace, represented a hecticomb of human lives. Slaves from Ethiopia, captives taken in war, Syrian immigrants settled in the delta, were alike pressed into the service of the state. We know how the Hebrews suffered, and to what an extremity of despair they were reduced by the tasks imposed upon them. Yet even the Hebrews were less cruelly used than some who were kidnapped beyond the frontiers. Torn from their homes without hope of return, driven in herds to the mines, the quarries, and the brick-fields, these hapless victims were so dealt with that not even the chance of desertion were open to them. The negroes from the south were systematically drafted to the north, the Asiatic captives were transported to Ethiopia. Those who labored underground were goaded on without rest or respite, till they fell down in the mines and died. That Ramesses II was the pharaoh of the captivity, and that Meneptah, his son and successor, was the pharaoh of the exodus, are now among the accepted presumptions of Egyptological science. The Bible and the monuments confirm each other upon these points, while both are again corroborated by the results of recent geographical and philological research. The treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses, which the Israelites built for Pharaoh with bricks of their own making, are the Patum and Pa-Ramses of the inscriptions, and both have recently been identified by M. Naville in the course of his excavations conducted in 1883 and 1886 for the Egypt Exploration Fund. The discovery of Pithom, the ancient biblical treasure city of the first chapter of Exodus, has probably attracted more public attention and been more widely discussed by European savants than any archaeological event since the discovery of Nineveh. It was in February 1883 that M. Naville opened the well-known mound of Tel el Maskuta on the south bank of the new Sweetwater Canal in the Wadi Tumilat, and there discovered the foundations and other remains of a fortified city of the kind known in Egyptian as Bekhen or Storfort. This Bekhen, which was surrounded by a wall thirty feet in thickness, proved to be about twelve acres in extent. In one corner of the enclosure were found the ruins of a temple built by Ramesses II. The rest of the area consisted of a labyrinth of subterraneous rectangular cellars or store chambers, constructed of sun-dried bricks of large size and divided by walls varying from eight to ten feet in thickness. In the ruins of the temple were discovered several statues, more or less broken, a colossal hawk inscribed with the royal ovals of Ramesses II, and other works of art dating from the reigns of Osorkin II, Nectanabo, and Ptolemy Philadelphus. The hieroglyphic legends engraved upon the statues established the true value of the discovery by giving both the name of the city and the name of the district in which the city was situate, the first being Patum, Pithum, the abode of Tum, and the second being Thukut, Succoth, so identifying Patum in the district of Thukut with Pithom, the treasure city built by the forced labor of the Hebrews, and Succoth, the region in which they made their first halt 
on going forth from the land of bondage. Even the bricks with which the great wall and the walls of the store chambers are built bear eloquent testimony to the toil of the suffering colonists, and confirm in its minutest details the record of their oppression, some being duly kneaded with straw, others, when the straw was no longer forthcoming, being mixed with the leafage of a reed common to the marshlands of the delta, and the remainder, when even this substitute ran short, being literally bricks without straw, moulded of mere clay, crudely dried in the sun. The researches of M. Naville further showed that the temple to Tum, founded by Ramesses II, was restored or rebuilt by Yozorkin II of the twenty-second dynasty, whilst at a still higher level were discovered the remains of a Roman fortress. That Pithom was still an important place in the time of the Ptolemies is proved by a large and historically important tablet found by M. Naville in one of the store-chambers, where it had been thrown in with other sculptures and rubbish of various kinds. This table records repairs done to the canal, an expedition to Ethiopia, and the foundation of the city of Arisno. Not less important from a geographical point of view was the finding of a Roman milestone, which identifies Pithom with Hero, Heroopolis, where, according to the Septuagint, Joseph went forth to meet Jacob. This milestone gives nine Roman miles as the distance from Heroopolis to Clisma. A very curious manuscript lately discovered by Signore Gamarini in the library of Arezzo shows that even so late as the fourth century of the Christian era, this ancient walled enclosure, the camp or Aerocastra of the Roman period, the Pithom of the Bible, was still known to pious pilgrims as the Pithom built by the children of Israel, that the adjoining town, external to the camp, at that time established within the old Pithom boundaries, was known as Heroopolis, and that the town of Ramesses was distant from Pithom about twenty Roman miles. As regards Pa Ramesses, the other treasure city of Exodus, it is conjecturally but not positively identified by M. Naville, identified by M. Naville with the mound of Soft El Henna, the scene of his explorations in 1886. That Soft El Henna was identical with Kes, or Goshen, the capital of the land of Goshen, has been unequivocally demonstrated by the discoverer, and that it was also known in the time of Ramesses II as Pa Ramesses is shown to be highly probable. There are remains of a temple built of black basalt, with pillars, fragments of statues, and the like, all inscribed with the cartouches of Ramesses II, and the distance from Pithom is just twenty Roman miles. It was from Pa Ramesses that Ramesses II set out with his army to attack the confederate princes of Asia Minor, then lying in ambush near Kadesh, and it was thither that he returned in triumph after the great victory. A contemporary letter written by one Panbiza, a scribe, narrates in glowing terms the beauty and abundance of the royal city, and tells how the damsels stood at their doors in holiday apparel, with nosegays in their hands and sweet oil upon their locks, on the day of the arrival of the war-god of the world. This letter is in the British Museum. Other letters written during the reign of Ramesses II have by some been supposed to make direct mention of the Israelites. I have obeyed the orders of my master, writes the scribe Kauser to his superior Bakim Ta. 
being bidden to serve out the rations to the soldiers, and also to the Aperiu, Hebrews, who quarry stone for the palace of King Ramesses Meramon. A similar document written by a scribe named Keniamun, and couched in almost the same words, shows these Aperiu on another occasion to have been quarrying for a building on the southern side of Memphis, in which case Tura would be the scene of their labors. These invaluable letters written on papyrus in the hieratic character are in good preservation. They were found in the ruins of Memphis, and now form a part of the treasures of the Museum of Leyden. They bring home to us with startling nearness the events and actors of the Bible narrative. We see the toilers at their task, and the overseers reporting them to the directors of public works. They extract from the quarry those huge blocks which are our wonder to this day. Harnessed to rude sledges, they drag them to the riverside and embark them for transport to the opposite bank. Some are so large and heavy that it takes a month to get them down from the mountains to the landing place. Other laborers are elsewhere making bricks, digging canals, helping to build the great wall which reached from Pelusium to Heliopolis, and strengthening the defenses not only of Pithom and Ramesses, but of all the cities and forts between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. Their lot is hard, but not harder than the lot of other workmen. They are well fed, they intermarry, they increase and multiply. The season of their great oppression is not yet come. They make bricks, it is true, and those who are so employed must supply a certain number daily. But the straw is not yet withheld, and the task, though perhaps excessive, is not impossible. For we are here in the reign of Ramesses II, and the time when Menepta shall succeed him is yet far distant. It is not till the king dies that the children of Israel sigh by reason of the bondage. There are in the British Museum, the Louvre, and the Bibliothèque Nationale some much older papyri than those two letters of the Leyden collection, some as old, indeed, as the time of Joseph, but none, perhaps, of such peculiar interest. In these the scribes Kaiser and Keniamun seem still to live and speak. What would we not give for a few more of their letters? These men knew Memphis in its glory— and had looked upon the face of Ramesses the Great. They might even have seen Moses in his youth, while yet he lived under the protection of his adopted mother, a prince among princes. Kaiser and Keniamun lived and died and were mummied between three and four thousand years ago, yet these frail fragments of papyrus have survived the wreck of ages, and the quaint writing with which they are covered is intelligible to ourselves as to the functionaries to whom it was addressed. The Egyptians were eminently business-like, and kept accurate entries of the keep and labor of their workmen and captives. From the earliest epoch of which the monuments furnish record, we find an elaborate bureaucratic system in full operation throughout the country. Even in the time of the pyramid-builders there are ministers of public works, inspectors of lands, lakes, and quarries, secretaries, clerks, and overseers innumerable. From all these, we may be sure, were required strict accounts of their expenditure, as well as reports of the work done under their supervision. Specimens of Egyptian bookkeeping are by no means rare. The Louvre is rich in memoranda of the kind, some relating to the date tax, others to the transport and taxation of corn, the payment of wages, the sale and purchase of land for burial, and the like. 
if any definite and quite unmistakable news of the Hebrews should ever reach us from Egyptian sources, it will almost certainly be through the medium of documents such as these. End of section 44